0: Welcome to Live Yes with Arthritis from the Arthritis Foundation. You may have arthritis, but it doesn't have you. Here, you'll learn things that can help you improve your life and turn no into yes. This podcast is for the growing community of people like you who really care about conquering arthritis once and for all. Take a moment to subscribe to, rate, and comment on Live Yes with Arthritis, wherever you get your podcasts, and never miss an episode. Our hosts are arthritis patients Rebecca and Julie, and they're asking the questions you want answers to. Listen in.
1: Welcome to the Live Yes with Arthritis podcast. I'm Rebecca, an occupational therapist living with rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis. And I'm Julie, a
2: JA patient who's passionate about making sure all patients have a voice.
1: Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Live Yes with Arthritis podcast. With the CDC updating guidance for the reopening of schools and getting kids back in the classroom. There is one big contrast from last year's recommendations right. when We talked about this topic. Schools who can't follow all of these recommendations are still encouraged to return in person.
2: Which means that we have a lot of questions and considerations about accommodations, what we're entitled to, what we're not entitled to, and even just how to navigate that program that we're all asking ourselves. So we're just thrilled to have a special guest back with us on the show again. Heidi Goldsmith, she's going to be helping us talk through the educational rights plans that we can establish and how they can be applied in the context of the pandemic this fall. Heidi has been serving the needs of children and families in the area of special education for more than 20 years. She is the parent attorney representative to the Stakeholders Council for the Office of Dispute Resolution, which oversees all due process and mediations in the state of Pennsylvania. She also serves on the Professional Advisory Board of the Learning Disabilities of America, as well as the chair of the Bylaws and Policy Committee. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so thankful to have you here.
3: Thank you for having me back.
2: We did last year have a really phenomenal conversation about the basics of IEP and 504 planning, including things like the rights of parents who are immunocompromised and even how to file for some of these plans. Heidi, to kick us off, do you want to give us a little bit of kind of the current landscape of returning back to school this fall? The landscape has really been a
3: lot different and has evolved over the course of the year. We've had a whole shift from, you know, coming out of lockdown, having situations that people have been home, a real question about masks, there was not vaccinations available, and a lot of the guidance was very conservative in its nature as things have opened up and vaccinations become available, is that education and the loss to kids for the education shutdown and not being in person has really impacted it. Kids with disabilities, kids with any type of health issues have really been compromised even more significantly than other populations. We obviously have kids under 12 who cannot receive vaccinations. We have people who, for health reasons, cannot receive vaccinations. So we're not out of it yet.
2: It can be so, so difficult. And Rebecca, you're a parent of a a child going back to school. Even for someone who is not immunocompromised, it's challenging and scary, right?
1: Yeah, totally. I I think last year, I remember how nervous I was about sending him off into a hybrid situation for school, mostly because of my situation of Mm -hmm. being immunocompromised. So for all of our listeners who are, on immune suppressing medications and their children are in school or young adults who are in college or teenagers who are going back to school in person? What does it mean for you in your area? What kind of recommendations are out there and protections are out there for parents to reach out for?
3: So one of the great things about the pandemic is it really taught people kind of what local politics and how it works. So you, you kind of didn't understand prior to this whole situation how much power school district boards actually had or the interplay between school boards and other state agencies. So really what the CDC recommends and really how the legal framework is set up is it's a partnership between the state and the county, as well as the local school district. What's supposed to happen is the county and the school board are supposed to really say, hey, we're taking a real local level look at what the transmission rates are, how significant the COVID percent positivity in our rate, and making decisions on what the strategies are. It's great if they work together, and that's what we all hope, but there can be a lot of conflict. So it really depends on your area. It seems like in terms of the landscape right now, Most schools are moving towards going, returning in-person full-time with limited remote options, if any. Some are not offering any at all. In addition, you have a lot of districts who are moving towards no masks if they return to fall. However, you do have places like California, some places in New Hampshire and other areas locally that are still stating that they're having the kids return with masks.
2: And it's difficult also because, you know, as we all have lived through this, we've seen guidelines change and new rules and and kind of regulations come out related to COVID mandates and masks and social distancing and so on. From your perspective, if you can kind of predict the future a little bit based on what the past has been, do you think that the guidelines that we have today from schools will remain on firm ground until August,
3: September so the, the shift has been very clear from the CDC, and they've taken kind of a hard stance, even with the Delta variant, even against recommendations by the WHO that state, if you are vaccinated, you do not need to wear a mask. And that that came through clear in the guidelines. So they're, they're really recommending returning with masks for just the under 12 crowd. I think when the vaccination becomes available for the K through 12, I do think you're going to see the CDC shift in its guidance towards that. I'm reading tea leaves here, but just generally based upon, you know, what we've seen, I suspect that's going to happen sometime around September, October.
2: And when you consider the guidelines just in general for our school-aged children, do you feel that the CDC is considering all school-aged children? Are we kind of creating guidelines for the healthiest among us and the immunocompromised kids are kind of facing an uphill battle and determining what that looks like themselves or are there specific caveats within the guidelines that can, can help to provide some leadership to these families with immunocompromised kids?
3: The CDC has issued guidelines. They're not laws. They're not regulations. There was also guidance that just came out in the middle of May from the Office of Civil Rights, which is actually the governmental agency that talks about how to interpret the civil right laws. And the IDEA in Section 504 is a civil right law. The Office of Civil Rights, and why that's so important is not only do they have decision-making power if there's complaints, but it's also the guidance that courts and hearing officers look to in determining what is right for kids with disabilities. So the OCR came out very strong that th- with the assumption that masks will be required it was funny because they didn't talk about kids who needed masks in a mask-free environment. Instead, they were talking about kids and what their rights were if they couldn't wear a mask. But what's interesting is that same logic, whether for or against masks, still holds true. And here's what it is. Children with disabilities are entitled to a free, appropriate education, Okay, regardless of how that happens. Now, that doesn't mean home. It could be a private school. It could be another learning center. But what the OCR specifically said is there is no decrease in their rights to a free, appropriate public education, and that they have to reasonably accommodate these kids and they have to create strategies to make sure that the environment that they're in is safe. So, one of the strategies that I think that parents can easily obtain is hand washing, and that's something in line with the CDC guidance. The physical distancing, again, you know, CDC recommends three feet. Absolutely, I think that that's something that parents can absolutely obtain in the school environment. I don't think there will be any question that the children who need to wear masks will be allowed to wear masks in terms of, again, teachers wearing masks. That usually is not so much an issue unless the teacher themselves has a disability or for some reason cannot wear a mask. And then there's other strategies in place. Since. Busing is actually considered public transportation. Regardless of if the school is mask-free, you still actually have to wear a mask on school buses. So that is something that will not change even if your district is without masks. You are entitled to an appropriate environment. So if you need to be one that's safe, you can absolutely seek your school district to provide that, even if it means it be in an alternate location, such as a private school that still requires masks, a neighboring public school that may have a different mask guidance you know intermediate units or other agencies that are providing educational systems that are provided in a more safe environment
1: given that the rules are different wherever you are living heidi how can parents advocate for their child for any accommodations they feel like they need especially if they're immunocompromised and not just our grade school kids or high school kids but also for those college students and maybe some adults who are returning to school what kind of accommodations are are still appropriate to ask to protect themselves from getting sick
3: so the first thing that i would suggest doing is reaching out to your doctor and asking them to create a document that would you know you could take to the school like a letter or a little prescription note's not going to work you know it has to be like a formal letter indicating exactly what the accommodations or specially designed instruction you're gonna need for your child going back. The other recommendation I have is the same one as last year, which is start early. The school year's rapidly approaching. Some kids are going back in early August. So you need to get the doctor's note and ask for a meeting with the district. What is important when you're dealing with summer in the districts is that you contact people in writing and phone calls. Because if you place a phone call to a district person who's on vacation, they return, they have 30 phone calls, they're gonna forget it. And you need to follow up and you don't have the luxury of time. If you're not hearing back within 48 hours, re-follow up with the district personnel again. Ask for a meeting to take place. The other key component that you'll hear is, well, we can't get staff in. Be willing to waive staff members. Have a meeting without a staff member. You know, I'll do it in writing. That's not a problem. In terms of colleges, you need to be reaching out for the Office of Disability Services. And they're called different things at different colleges but definitely be reaching out. It was interesting, again, about that OCR guidance. They talk specifically about colleges and the fact that colleges will need to accommodate kids who may need remote learning because they can't return to campus. And that they shouldn't merely take the approach that if a young person is seeking that accommodation for a program or a class, that that would fundamentally alter, that they have to try to accommodate it and if they can't accommodate, they have to find other supports and services to try to make it possible for that child to access that program or service, which was a lot stronger language than last time.
0: Get tips to help you take control of arthritis and put your mind at ease with the Arthritis Foundation's free ebooks. They're packed with trusted information from the experts on all kinds of topics. See the full menu at arthritis.org slash ebooks.
2: How do you define a reasonable accommodation? And if you have a child that's immunocompromised, what kind of questions should you be asking yourself about building a reasonable, safe, and fair classroom setting for them?
3: The reason that the law is called individuals with education is because it's individualized. I would work in partnership with your doctor. And also the Arthritis Foundation, because again, you know, there's general accommodations we might be aware of, such as hand washing, social distancing, ventilation, you know, mask wearing, all those things are things that you can ask for. If you're in a district, there is nothing except for the one issue. And again, it's because it's become so political sized is the mask issue. I think that would be the only one that you might have to have more documentation of in terms of supporting a mass environment. However, you have not only the CDC guidance supporting that, you have OCR guidance that basically assumes that kids are going to be returning to a mass environment for kids with disabilities. So I think you have a lot of leverage to push back on districts of creating those safe spaces. What is important to know that is that there should be no discrimination that comes along with that. So one of the things that I want parents to be vigilant of is if they say, listen, we need social distancing. Oh, well, we can't do that in that club or we can't do that so they can't go to that specific activity. They, they've got to make reasonable accommodations for that. So, you know, if they're in an auditorium, if it's outside at recess, Children who have special needs are able to access every single one of those. So I would also be thinking about the different activities you want your child to participate in, such as assemblies. You know whether or not recess is compromised, whether or not you know there's
1: extracurricular activities because that's included too in what they're going to need to be able to access those. If I'm thinking about my situation and how it might translate to other families out there thinking about going back to school, I'm on an immunobiologic. So we still don't know how well the vaccine is going to help me against any COVID or variant of COVID, right? So when I get my infusion every month, it wipes out my immune system. So could there be pushback in that where somebody, a parent can say, my child is vaccinated. However, they receive medication that affects their immune system. And the district might come back and say, well, they're vaccinated. So we don't necessarily need to do that accommodation. How would you suggest a parent handles that situation?
3: I do think that that's going to be a, an issue going forward because, again, part of the difficulty is, is if the district is warranting that they're providing certain safety measures as part of a 504 or IEP and they fail to adhere to it, you, they're actually opening themselves up to legal liability. So I do think you're going to get more pushback, especially since the CDC has been so strong on the fact that you know, if you're vaccinated, you know, it's kind of a catch-all, you're good to go. And we all have to remember, much as you pointed out, that even people who are vaccinated, there may be reasons that they still need more additional accommodation supports and safety protocols. And that goes back to my point of why it's so important to get a doctor involved who can, you know, explain that with the studies and the information so that you're educating the school district people, because again, they're, they're not going to know that. They're going to look to the CDC. So getting that documentation right, providing that as quickly as possible to the districts to explain why, yes, you understand the CDC makes those certain guidance it's of three feet, but you still need six
1: feet. So we know that there's HIPAA rules and privacy rules and all of that. You can't expect or make anyone on a school staff or even students and their parents share whether or not they've been vaccinated. But let's say a parent has a child who is immunocompromised. They do decide, okay, well, we're going to send them to school with a mask. But I want to know if the classroom teacher is vaccinated. Is that possible?
3: You know, what's interesting is that is a common belief that districts are covered by HIPAA. I get that all the time. You know, it's a violation of HIPAA. HIPAA is only related to medical facilities that are providing medical care. Districts are not covered under HIPAA. They're covered under FERPA, which is the Family Education Rights Privacy Act. And then you have district personnel who have certain, you know, rights. So districts can absolutely ask for vaccination. It's not a violation of HIPAA. You know, you can choose not to provide it, but then there could be other consequences to those choices of whether or not you would then be required to have a mask, where there is a little bit of an interplay this is a gray area, let's say you're returning to an environment that's masked and you have a teacher and or a student or staff member come in and say, I am a person who has a disability and I need an exemption to the mask requirement. That's the ADA. Under the ADA, you can't ask them what their disability is or to prove that type of situation. So if you have a teacher who is unmasked, it's a situation where You may not be able to ask what the disability is for the not masking, but you can ask if they're vaccinated. And the districts would be required to ensure that if your child is immune compromised, that there are safety protocols in place, which would mean possibly that they would be only be placed with vaccinated teachers who
1: would still also wear a mask if needed. That's very helpful. I'm I'm glad that I asked that question. <laughs> yeah. If a family decides, let's say, they have a child who is immunocompromised, that virtual learning is still what they want to do for now, how do they go about asking for that? Is that an accommodation? Yes, it is.
3: That is an absolute accommodation. Federal law, Trump, state laws, state mandates... And kids have a right to an appropriate education. If, for that child, based upon that child's individual needs, they need a remote option or a hybrid option or a situation where it's kind of an ebb and flow option, because what the CDC guidance tells us is that it, it's going to be an evolving monitoring process where you're looking at transmission rates of, you know, and how much safety protocols you're putting into place, whether or not you have a screening process. So if there is a situation where you have a child who may be in and out of school, you need to have that as part of the plan. And they are entitled to the same quality supports and services as if they were attending in person, which could potentially mean that a teacher comes to the house. A vaccinated teacher would come and provide instruction in the house if that child needs that in-person learning, but needs to do it not in a large public school setting
0: want to connect with others who understand what you're going through? The Arthritis Foundation's Live Yes online community features forums on specific topics where you can chat with those who know what it's like, including healthcare experts. Or check out our local virtual connect groups for a more personal touch. Sign up at arthritis.org slash liveyes.
2: skepticism and cynicism when it comes to all things COVID vaccines and masks and social distancing. And it's unfortunately something that's been politicized. But as a parent, how do you go about advocating for those reasonable accommodations if you're dealing with some cynicism coming back to you about what might actually be reasonable or what might not be? How can you set yourself up for success in in really being your kid's best advocate?
3: So. What is great about all the laws that touch upon kids with special needs is that there's always dispute resolution mechanisms. So you have actually a variety of avenues you can push the situation for it. Obviously, an attempt to keep things locally, speaking to the director of special education, a superintendent, the school board, as much as possible you want to try to keep it local. But after that, there's mediation available in all states regarding special education disputes. There is usually some other resolution systems such as state complaints where you can file with the state educational agency. There is also usually situations OCR, you can file a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights, they will do an investigation, as well as what is known as the due process proceedings, which are the legal lawsuits where you can actually have a hearing officer or a judge, each state's different, come in and listen to the dispute and make a legal enforceable order as to what the resolution will be.
1: So would a parent have to hire a lawyer to, to file a dispute? They are not required. However, and I'm
3: not just saying this because I am a lawyer. <laughs> <But> <laughs> these proceedings are, are like court. You have a court reporter. You have a judge. There There's going to be objections to, to testimony. So my advice is, even if you don't want to hire a lawyer, I would still consult with them. Every state has usually a parent training center that's available, and they're called different things, you know, pick, peel... Um, but each state is required and federally funded to have a training center. I would reach out to them, speak to one of their advisors that's free of cost. They can refer you to attorneys who they know will are able to help parents who may have
2: cost prohibitive issues. Again, I would at least consult with one. The most helpful commodity and most valuable commodity right now is time and getting moving on these things quickly so that if there is a dispute, you have some runway before the school year begins or something like that in the event that a parent doesn't win that dispute. What happens then?
3: You have a right to appeal. You can usually appeal to your state court or your federal court. My advice is to appeal to the federal courts and then the federal court has a, you know, a lower district court and then a circuit court and then obviously after that, the Supreme Court.
2: Oh, and what happens with your child's education while you're going through a dispute like
3: this it's a term of art called pendency, and that's what happens when you file in terms of mediation or a due process hearing, and that basically means that the child will remain in their pendant placement, and that's defined as the last agreed upon placement. So whatever situation your child was in previously, they will be in in going forward if and I would be surprised to see it, but theoretically, it could happen if you, if your 504 or IEP actually included statements that they would be offered an environment where everyone would be fully masked. That would be your, technically your pendant placement. And I am not sure how the districts would get around that, you know, because they would clearly have to offer that. So, again, making sure that whatever in your 504 or IEP is very specific and very clear and as broad as possible. Is always important because if you end up in a dispute in the future, that's what everyone sticks at through the pendency of the proceedings.
2: Well, that's really helpful. So if you went through the motions of setting up a 504 plan last year that was kind of pandemic ready, those protections then would carry over into this school year in the event that you were in a pendant position. Is that true for? Just general school year from year to year, does your 504 carry over?
3: Yeah, generally 504s carry over year to year. I have found that they tend to be three-year documents.
1: In mm-hmm. most states, they tend to carry over. Sometimes they're lifelong. A lot of kids who have any type of juvenile arthritis might be heading off to college in the fall. And that 504 plan can still be used in that college setting. We talked about that in our first episode with you last year. and how you should work with the disability office on campus to to figure out their plan. Is there anything different this year, a year later, that you might add so college students know how to arm themselves to protect themselves on campus?
3: So it would be somewhat the same recommendations, not only that 504 plan, but also getting updated any type of medical accommodations that you would need to attend your school I think making sure that we're envisioning how that child's gonna be attending those classes with the appropriate accommodations and what they can offer in place as soon as possible would be important. What would be important to that is obviously finding out your class sizes. You need to be looking at how large those class sizes are, what the ventilation systems are, are they offering any physical distancing in those larger classes.
2: In my experience in registering for classes, Oftentimes you can see the class capacity, how many people are able to be in a particular class right there in the registrar, which is an easier thing than maybe calling the Office of Disability and saying, hey, here are the six classes that I'm thinking of taking. Can you help me balance the the day of the week and all of the other pieces? You can have that relationship with your Office of Disability Services where you can find those things out. One thing that I have seen recently is that a lot of college campuses are being very proactive about having immunization records for their students and for their staff. How would you go about navigating the process of getting all of your information in as soon as possible with all of the 504 information as well? Are there any special tricks to making sure that you can build a good relationship with your Office of Disability Services and your campus generally early on?
3: So my advice is always, even when you're visiting the campus for any reason, stop in. Mm -hmm. That in-person quality of walking into the office and seeing the people and meeting the people, I think is always important. You get a sense of the people that work there. You get a sense of how supportive they are. I would generally suggest meeting with them in person or via Zoom, depending on your health issues, before school, mid-year, and near the end of the year to plan for next year. Mm -hmm. What often happens for kids when they walk into a college setting is as strong of self-advocates as they are, it's a really big transition time. And, you know, you keep trying to work within the system and not touching base sometimes allows problems to get too big. There's always things that pop up that you didn't anticipate that they might need supports or
2: services with. It's important to have those early conversations with your office of disability services, because, If for no other reason, like you might not want them, your professors to know about your arthritis, but you certainly want someone in that classroom to help nudge the students who are taking their masks off or who are you know, not abiding by the guidelines to have that extra level of risk mitigation on your behalf, even if they don't know which student it is that needs some extra buffering. What about from the mental health side of it, from just like the burden side of it? What guidance can you offer parents who are overwhelmed or students who are overwhelmed by the task ahead as they figure out how to navigate gaining those those special accommodations for next year?
3: A lot of the research came out about the impact COVID has actually had on on everyone's mental health. Mm -hmm. And especially for kids with disabilities and kids in general, it seems to have impacted them to a greater extent. So one of the things that a lot of the guidance and regulations that are coming out is really creating initiatives for social emotional learning, as well as having situations, and this is the critical part, is making districts really aware and schools really aware that they need to be outreaching, just not reactive. And I think we are going to see a lot of initiatives in the districts that are going to be helpful to that. Unfortunately, you know, in terms of right now accessing mental health services for you know parents there's no legal right under the IDEA or section 504 but what you do have legal rights for especially in this time when you are exhausted is having advocates and a lot of the local arcs those parent training centers that I've communicated about again these are all free services actually offer people who will attend meetings with you for free. And that extra level of support is needed. I always recommend, regardless of pandemic or mental health issues, you do bring someone else to a meeting. Because one, listen, I've sat at the IEP meeting table as an attorney for 20-some years. I also have three kids, some who have special needs. It is 10 million times harder when you're there on your own kid. And having that other person around who can you know, make sure you're hearing everything, make sure you're reminded to talk about everything, that you're not forgetting something, is really helpful.
0: Check out the Arthritis Foundation's new app called VIM to help people with arthritis gain power over their pain. The app features expert educational content, a goal and activity tracker, and opportunities to connect with others. It'll help you set attainable goals and achieve small wins that add up to big victories. Download the app at arthritis.org slash VIM, spelled V-I-M.
1: Well, I think this was a very helpful conversation. It's really interesting to, to revisit this topic with you again, Heidi. A year later, after all that we've learned and still there's gray areas. (laughs) But I wonder if as we wrap up today, if there are three takeaways that you can share based on our conversation of how to safely navigate getting back to school at any age for our listeners.
3: I always like to give new takeaways. Unfortunately, the first one's going to remain the same, which is start now. (laughs) The second thing, though, is is get your doctors involved. We know a lot more about what those accommodations and recommendations are. And three, you know, being strong advocates for our kids. I mean, what we've all learned from this is we've learned what works and what, what doesn't work for our kids. And we know more medically what they need and what they don't need and what's safe. And really going in with that with a clear direction of, a plan of action that we need to have for your kid. And honestly, you know, I call it the iron fist with a velvet glove. You can (laughs) really be strong and pursue things, but you don't have to do it in an aggressive, negative manner. So just don't back down and keep pushing the ball forward.
2: The iron fist and the velvet glove, I think is really important and such a helpful helpful illustration for us. And I think one of the things that comes back to me every time we have a conversation about back to school is that it's just, so much easier to work toward a solution before there is a problem rather than trying to be in a real crisis space and realizing then you have to figure out your accommodations. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you
3: very much.
0: This Live Yes with Arthritis podcast was brought to you by the trusted experts of the Arthritis Foundation. We're bringing together leaders in the arthritis community to help you make a difference in your own life in ways that make sense. You may have arthritis, but it doesn't have you. The content in this episode was developed independently by the Arthritis Foundation. To download our new Vim Pain Management app, visit arthritis.org Vim, spelled V-I-M. For podcast episodes and show notes, go to arthritis.org slash podcast and stay in touch.